You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. It's Friday! Hopefully... Everybody has had a great week, and hopefully everybody is looking forward to the upcoming weekend. I know several people where I live in Iowa uh, are pretty jacked because Sunday marks opening day for the archery season here in uh, the Hawkeye State, and uh, not only am I pumped for that, even though I probably won't hunt, but uh, that just is a huge signal that... uh, Hunting season is here and that the rut is literally like four weeks away. And uh, that is when I am going to be putting in a ton of time in the timber, just like uh, a majority of uh, you guys and gals who are listening. Now, as you all know, I have a kid, right? And because this kid was so close to uh, an elk trip, that uh, I had planned earlier in September, I was unable to go and, um, you know, I was I was unable to go on this elk trip that I had planned for quite a long time. But today's guest, I'm living vicariously through today's guest, and he is a return guest. I think this is his third time. Uh, his name is Ben Gatormson. Uh, if you haven't listened to the podcast that we've done with him previously, go do it. He is an awesome guest. And uh, today we're going to talk about his recent Montana hunt that he did in a, uh, a zone that it's taken him a while to get into. And I'm telling you right now, this guy is a killer. He is has an awesome story. He walks through. Um, he goes through detail about all of the uh, scouting that he did to harvest this bull. Um, he talks a little bit about an internal dilemma that he had, whether he wanted to hunt on uh, public or hunt on private. Uh, he shares with us that story, and then he, he shares with us how he ended up harvesting this gigantic bull. Um, this is a guy who literally gets it done every year. And he's very good at what he does, and I I hate him just a little bit because of that. Uh, so, thanks Ben for coming on. Really appreciate that. And 
for those of you who maybe live in the east or the midwest and don't have these western species to go hunt uh go to bighornoutfitters.com uh my buddy dustin DeCrew runs that operation uh and based off their uh, social media feeds based off their Instagram. They're having one hell of a year out there with antelope and elk and mule deer. And, um, you know, I, I flip through that, uh, I flip through their Instagram feed. I'm just, I get jealous cause I want to, I want to be out there. I want to take, uh, advantage of all that public land. I want to, I don't know. Anyway, hunting some of those species is a dream of mine if it's a dream of yours contact dustin DeCrew at bighorn outfitters and just go to their website bighornoutfitters.com and you'll be able to take a look at all the species you can hunt all the trips they offer the prices uh definitely uh definitely get a hold of them if it's uh, something you're interested in I got mumble mouth already and I haven't even started the podcast, but that is probably because I'm rushing through this because I can hear my brand new son crying in the background. So I'm just going to get right into today's BS Hunter Profile podcast with uh, our good buddy, Ben Gatormson. All right. We are back again with returning guest, Ben Gatormson. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Let's see. I can't remember if we've talked since you've had your your child or not, but how is dad life going? It's uh it's pretty awesome. Um I uh I have I have zero to complain about, that's for sure. Um I've got a super supportive wife that still lets me kind of get out and do the things I love and then on top of that, any time spent at home with the family is always pretty awesome right. and you know, when they're when they're his age, you know, anybody that's, that's had kids and, and raised kids, you know, he's starting to get fun. He's interactive. He's, <laughs> he's, he's walking around. He's, you know, right. he knows, I mean, he's, he's comprehending a lot and you know, that's, that it's, it's been a blast. Right. So, right now I just had my third kid. Oh man. Five days ago. So yep. congratulations by the way on that. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. yep. Thank you. Thank you. And kid number three is obviously more like three kids is obviously more than two kids. And I've noticed that there is definitely a a bell curve or a curve of a graph of some sort where, you know, the more kids you have, the less hunting you can do. And I know that that's on my end. So are you, are you a one and done, you one and done kid, or are you guys planning on having any more? No, we've, we've talked, um, I think, uh, I think we have, we have, uh, you know, more kids, uh, in the future. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of planning and, and stuff that you got to do. Right. At least in my, in my, my side, I, I, I'd like to, you know, know what, what's coming anyway. (laughs) So, absolutely. Absolutely. um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's something that, uh, me and my wife have talked about and we're, I think we're going to, we're going to continue to, to grow the family. So nice. So I quick question for you is your, does your wife hunt? I know she's, you know, she's pretty supportive of uh, you and what you do, but is she a hunter at all? You know, when I met her, she had participated. She was a participant, right? Not in terms of the actual um, pulling the trigger and stuff, but she enjoyed being outside 
uh, you know, early mornings, late evenings, you know, you get to see things you normally wouldn't being in places that you normally don't see anything, you know? And, um, so she, she, you know, she, she, she proclaimed she loved to, you know, gut animals and, you know, take part in the, in the processing and, and stuff like that before I met her. And then, uh, I got her into bow hunting. She really enjoyed shooting a bow. Um, she's pretty good at it too. So she, uh, her first year with, she actually listened to me, um, (laughs) when it came to the coaching aspect of it. And I know that can be a struggle sometimes with couples and, and getting them into, into, you know, something that one side of the relationship is passionate about, but she did really well. She won a belt buckle, you know, in a, in some league shooting that we had done locally, um, in the, in a group of, uh, you know, like a girl's class. And, uh, she, uh, um, she really enjoyed it now. I mean, as, as things have kind of gone on it, uh, she, she wants to do it, but she doesn't have as much time with the baby and stuff. So, and actually, you know, some of your listeners have probably seen it and I should, uh, I should get you a copy of it, but, uh, uh, I proposed to her over her first uh, harvest with a bow. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that's kind of um, interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 cool because it's something that that strengthened our relationship. You know, some I introduced her to something, and it's something that you know my my livelihood revolves around, and and you know something I'm incredibly passionate about, and she took it up and she did good with it. And, uh, she shot a, a little five by five white tail, um, out of a tree stand with me. It was a double stand. We were sitting next to each other. I actually have the shot on video. I have the, you know, I handed the phone off to a buddy of mine that was with me and he, you know, he was in on it, but I gave her a, a custom made engraved knife by a, a local, uh, knife maker here in Bozeman. And, uh, um, it said, will you marry me on it? And, uh, I gave that to her, you know, as we were sitting down taking trophy photos and, uh, it's made the rounds, I think on social media once or twice. And, nice. um, but I'll, I'll get you the video. It's something maybe you can share on, uh, Oh heck yeah. I'll do on that. your stuff. And I thought and, maybe, so, so, I thought maybe what you would ahead. do is you'd have the, like the, the ring in the gut pile and you'd be searching, you know, gotten the animal and like oh my god i found this in there and then you get on one knee and it's just like the bloody ring maybe i find that humorous but no no and you know i've seen other people do it with like the ring on a tine or something like this yeah yeah and i didn't you know to be honest i didn't even have a ring at that point in time i wanted to pick out the ring together okay with her um because i want I, i mean that's one thing i mean the women have to wear the ring, whether they like it or not. And if, right. if, you know, if I bought a ring that she didn't like, you'd never hear it from that person. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> it depends on, the, depends on the, on the, on the woman, I guess. But you know, it, 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 it symbolizes something, but I wanted it to be something we chose together. So I got her a, a very nice, it's got like a burled maple handle. Um, the, the knife is gorgeous and we still have it. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, like an heirloom and, you know, so. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Well, but sounds to me like you're off to one hell of a season already. And 
and that's what kind of what I want to talk about uh, today is you just slammed a huge, and, and I'm a I'm a flatlander, right? I'm from the Midwest. We don't have elk in Iowa, but uh, I love hearing the stories about it, especially you and your story because it seems to me that you are almost automatic based off of you know from me knowing and meeting you the last three or you know handful of years you go in you go up in the mountains you kill shit you bring it back i've I've been very fortunate you know and it's it's uh i've I've been on this 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 train here for a couple years and and um you know like like i mentioned earlier i think you know some somebody's somebody's looking out for me i think a little bit you know because it's 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 as much you know wood wise knowledge you know when you're in the hills and and chasing animals as it is uh you know things going your way i mean right. nothing's ever a given you know and and you know you never know for sure but right. uh, i think uh it's you know my success is a reflection of the time that i put in you know um this year hunting a new area for me um I put in literally every single weekend that I had available to scouting. And, um, that's a lot of miles on the boots. That's a lot of, a lot of hours behind the glass. And it's being out there during those key times, you know, that, that first half hour of light and that last half hour. And when that place is, um, you know, six or seven hours from my home, you know, that's a commitment in itself. Right. So, right. Um, and I, I, think, get into, I think that, yeah, yeah, definitely. We're going to get into that, uh, here in a second, but you started off, you started off doing a, an antelope hunt, right? Yep. Was that with, uh, yep. cause you, you shoot both a compound and trad equipment, right? I do. Yeah. Last year I shot exclusively trad equipment and, um, this year I kind of, I'm, I'm mixing it back up. So, um, you know, with, with the pressure of having a, a baby on the way or not a baby on the way, but a, a newborn at home, you know, I'm, I want to be home more and, and, you know, be as helpful yeah. as I can and whatnot. And, um, you know, my wife understands that this is the time of year that I want to be in the field as much as I can. And she'll flat out tell me, go, you know, like, I'm like, well, you know, what about this? What about that? She, she I mean, get out of here. <laughs> so she doesn't like to deal with me at home think when I haven't had my Fixed. my time in the field which is which is awesome um right. I really really hit the jackpot with her so awesome um so but let's talk about this antelope hunt um I think you mentioned you live in Anaconda No, I'm in Bozeman. Okay, Bozeman. you're in Bo- you're in Bozeman. All right, so yep. uh, were you hunting antelope close to where you live? Uh, it's a couple hours, um, you know, two and a half, three hours, um, you know, out towards more of the plains and stuff like that. You know, that more the, the stereotypical antelope country. Right. Right. Were you now, when you go out antelope hunting, are you like out for size? Are you, I mean, I don't know if antelope hunters are selective on maturity or, um, just to try to get meat in the freezer. When you go out, are you looking for anything specific, or is it like, hey man, first one that gives me an op- first buck that gives me an opportunity, he's gonna he's gonna get an arrow. You know, a lot of times I I spend 
I spend time, you know, looking for, you know, the right antelope, you know, something that I feel is a good representation of the species and also a good representation of the area that I'm hunting in. Yeah. Um, but antelope also is my favorite to eat out of anything. Really? Um, from, from a table fare standpoint, I don't feel like there is much that is better. Um, it, it even trumps elk, um, in, in my freezer. So, and why, um, what is it for a guy like you, who's had elk, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh man, I'll choose elk over mule deer, elk over whitetail, elk over everything. What is it about antelope meat that trumps elk meat in your opinion? You know, I, I think it's a lot of, uh, it's, it's just a little different tasting and, you know, you get into the good cuts of steak and stuff like that. And if it's cooked and prepared, right, it's, it's more tender. It falls apart. It has a, it has a different taste and it's, uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe. Um, but if, if I had a, you know, a, you know, like a, a butterfly steak and like the backstrap on a, uh, antelope and an elk right in front of me, cut to the same thickness, you know, salt and pepper, the same seared in the same pan. Um, I think you'd find that the antelope is, is a little more tender and it, it just, you know, my preference is for that. So, you know, when you get into, when you get into the other cuts of meat and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's a little flatter, but I think in a, you know, in a, in a top grade piece, it's, it's, it's a little better in my opinion. So, so someone once told me that, uh, another guy, uh, that I think I've had on the podcast really likes uh, antelope meat too. Does it taste ha- or have like a a flavor of the the grass that they eat? Can you taste? You know, meat? I I can't. Um, and I'm sure if you got down to it, and if you took a completely you know unseasoned piece of meat and you just seared it. Yeah. And cook it to the right internal temperature, you might you might get some of that flavor. Um right. but I, I mean I've I've hunted and killed antelope that spend a lot of time on like agriculture, you know, eating okay. you know, alfalfa and, and you know, hay, stuff like that. And I've also killed numerous antelope that are out with not a single piece of ag anywhere near them. So they're in sage, they're in grass, you know prairie grasses and stuff like that and you know i think i think honestly the taste of an animal you know be it an antelope and elk anything has a lot to do with the preparation and the care in in uh you know cleaning and gutting and how quickly it gets to the processor um because you know you talk to a lot of guys and they oh antelope's terrible you know and you know your antelope season for a lot of the Western states is early when it's still really warm and antelope are, are typically in more remote areas. Well, if, if you plan to go hunt and you harvest an antelope and it takes you two days to get to a meat processor or get it to a cold storage facility, you know, you're going to have, you know, some of the integration, you know, I mean, antelope have a very pungent smell and a very oily fur and hair. And I think if it's not cared for properly, a lot of that will, you know, almost transfer into the flavor of your meat. And right. if, if antelope tasted anywhere near the way they smell, they would, they would be disgusting. 
<laughs> I think that's the um, same with uh, like a, any any rutting buck or rutting elk or anything like that. Uh, yeah, we're not we're not eating them based off what they smell like beforehand. Absolutely, but I mean, there are situations where you 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 know you you can taste some of that you know that what you smell when you smell one in a, in a steak or something. And it, right. it doesn't always, it's not yeah, always very pleasant. So right. Right. And that's, that's where the preparation and taking care of the meat and stuff like that is so important. Yep. All right. Now elk, you, like I, like I said at the intro, dude, you went out and slammed a giant elk. And, um, this was a, this was a, a trip that had been a, a handful of years in the making. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an area that I've always wanted to hunt. I've never really, you know, I never really committed to it. I'm, I'm very at home in the back country of like what the mountains are. And this is more a, uh, breaks, you know, type hunt. This is prairie with coolies, junipers and, uh, you know, ponderosa pines and stuff like that. So it's, it was a little different terrain rise to what I'm normally hunting. So, but, so, and, and you mentioned also that this was a, you know, it was a, took you a handful of years to get into this, uh, this area. Mm-hmm. It, um, yeah, you have to apply and get drawn for this area. So okay. it's, it's not like a, it's not a given, Right. So it's a, it's a decent um, jog away from your house, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So there, and there's right there, there's a a lot that I want to talk about and you've already brought up just a little bit of it. And that is, it was a new terrain, right? With a new (laughs) terrain, you know, something that you're different used to, because I think uh, uh, last year's bull you uh, killed in some steeper and higher elevation, right? Yep, that's correct. Okay, so this is a this is a completely different environment uh, of elk hunting, um, and in a completely new location. Um, what preparation did you do to prepare for this hunt? You know, with it, you know, completely different terrain and it being so far away from your house. You know, um, and that's I think where the dedication and stuff comes in and, um, you know, that I, I feel like I'm a fairly dedicated hunter to the craft. And like I said, every weekend all summer that I had available was spent, um, in this area. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a long ways to get up there and to, to, to spend the time, um, to find the animals and, and start, you know, in preparation for, the hunt it it starts in june july right you know several months before so the scouting is is critical um you know a lot of people you know call animals the bull of a lifetime or the buck of a lifetime and stuff like that and it doesn't have to be you know you don't have to only be able to harvest an animal of a higher caliber once and the more you know about an area, the more you know about the animals that live in that area based on the time spent in scouting. I mean, anybody can, can go out there and, and be successful, you know, and I, like, like we talked, I've had a, a fairly good run 
the last few years when it comes to animals. And, um, you know, it's more refining my scouting technique than it is refining my hunting technique. Yeah. And it's, that's, that's where, I mean, it kind of separates the men from the boys. Hunting season doesn't open the day hunting season opens. Right. You know, it, it, you need to be able to spend the time out prior to season, you know, because that animal becomes that once in a lifetime opportunity when you walk into the field blindly and you stumble across one. Right. I think that's why, I mean, that, that, that phrase, that animal of a lifetime, that bull of a lifetime, that buck of a lifetime, whatever it is. And that can be applied to anything from antelope to, you know, to whitetails and everything in between. Absolutely. So, um, so then, what specifically, what did you do other than spend a lot of weekends driving out to this location and doing boots on the ground? Were you doing any type of digital scouting as well? Oh, yeah. Um, lots of, uh, you know, lots of lots of stuff online, you know. Um, you know, you know, I know a lot of people that uh, that have hunted, you know, that kind of that kind of terrain, that kind of area. Um, I reached out to some hunters that have hunted, you know, that area in the past and had success. And, you know, what, what, it, what kind of movement patterns did you see? You know, and everybody was a little different, but these, these animals were covering large amounts of ground. Um, you know, it, they, they summer in, in one spot and then they rut 10 miles away in another spot, which I've seen in some mountain applications as well. But just knowing that, is, is kind of setting yourself up for, okay, I got to look at this a little different because this bull that I'm looking at right now that's in velvet on the scouting trip probably isn't going to be there. Um, and there was one bull in particular that I found um, in velvet and I, I took some pictures of him and, and uh, kind of was like, yeah, you know, that'd be a great bull to shoot, you know, if I had the opportunity and um, I ended up finding him, you know, six or seven miles away. Yeah. And, and for those animals, that's nothing to cover. I mean, that's like a, that's like an afternoon walk. Yeah. You know, for you and me, that's walking to the park with your kids, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, what I did focus on was cows. Um, some of the areas that I was finding cows in June and July is where I found bulls that hadn't been present in the summer so that's one of the one of the key elements that that i use when i'm scouting is 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 don't necessarily only pay attention to bulls you know bulls give you a representation of what's there right the cows that are there typically are in a a fairly you know routine pattern right so you know that that's kind of the way I think it is with whitetails as well, I, you know, and that's something I obviously am way more comfortable uh, talking about than, you know, cause I've only been on one elk hunt my entire life, but the does seem to stay in, you know, on the farm on particular parts of the farm. You know, there's a group that lives in this area. There's a group doe group that lives in this area. And then, you know, in the summer, the bucks are in a, you know, one area, but then that September timeframe hits for whitetails and then they redistribute. Is there, yep. you know, and it sounds like the elk that you, you know, you observe some elk habits that, you know, 
that same kind of uh, you know that, that same kind of timeline throughout the year. So when you located these these cows, and then you had you know also located some of these bulls that you felt you know you might want to chase come the hunting season. How did you put together a strat a strategy before the season started? You know, because obviously the first time your first scouting trip, you go out there and you locate these, or you know whatever it was, your first, second, third. You're starting to locate these these elk, but they're in a summer pattern at that point. What are you doing to either forecast or plan ahead for where they're going to be? when the hunting season, uh, hunting season actually kicks in, you know, and that's, that's, uh, something that, you know, in a new area, you, you can only kind of guess on, but you'd have to assume that the, the mature bulls are going to transition to areas where there's cows. Um, and maybe not, you know, directly into the, but maybe on edges or, you know, stuff because these bulls like to be solitary. Um, especially when you get into the, the, the really big bulls, they're either, all alone or they'll have like a, a two and a half year old leghorn with them or something weird like that or a spike. Um, you don't see the, you know, the, the highest age class animals with, you know, animals that are just slightly younger than them, but are impressive in themselves. I think yeah. they, they, uh, they, they kind of pertain to, they, they kind of go to that solitary life and, and, um, I mean, that was pretty consistent with what I found. I found, you know, big groups of like four to six to even 10 bulls. And, you know, there wasn't a, a, a huge difference between the smallest and the largest, but they were all together. And then there'd be these oddball, you know, these really mature animals that were all alone or had a smaller bull with them, just kind of right. one little tag along. So, but, gotcha. uh, so then, you know, from a scouting standpoint, you know, you figured out, you know, the unit that you wanted to hunt, right? You, you, you drew it. So you knew I need to put boots on the ground here. When you shut your car door to head into the, you know, head into the, the hills, what were you looking for specifically as far as terrain features? So terrain feature wise, what, what I looked for, you know, was in particular, you know, Ridges. I was looking for cover areas that were heavy enough and and uh, north faces maybe that had had thicker cover for bedding. And then I also was was keen on water. And in Montana, we had a really hot, dry summer, and water was a, a big concern. Um, you know, if, if if anybody's kind of followed the fall, I mean, we had a a pretty a pretty insane fire season here, and there were that fire dangers were really high and, and there were some big, big, you know, fire systems that, that kind of grew throughout the fall. Um, so water was key, um, enough cover to, you know, find shade and stuff like that. So this, this is different terrain than mountain terrain where probably, you know, like I said, it's, it's coolies and, and, and breaks along the river, uh, in Eastern Montana. It's, it's, uh, it's not mountains and, and stuff like that. It's, uh, so you're, you're, you're looking for different things, you know, and, and out here water is scarce in this particular area. So you want to definitely know where these animals are watering. So I had lots of cameras that I'd set up for water. 
on water to kind of take inventory. And, you know, I, I put them where I've been seeing a lot of bull activity. And it was funny because, you know, shortly after the season opened, there was, you know, there was a pretty significant change in the frequency, um, you know, where I was seeing these, these bulls. And, and also, you know, things like, you know, where ranchers were moving cattle. Um, I found that areas where there were high concentrations of cattle, the elk would kind of move out, you know? So, um, and they would, I mean, the ranchers, you know, have it worked out with BLM and stuff like that so that they can, uh, um, you know, they can lease the, the ground for, for the purpose of grazing their cattle and everything. And, you know, that's, that's just kind of the nature of hunting public ground like that. You know, if it's, if it's beneficial to, to the ranchers and their cows and they're going to, they're going to work it out so they can utilize it. Right. So, so that had an impact on, uh, elk or, uh, where, where these animals were located as well. Right. I mean, did you go back, did you, did you find the elk in one location, one, one weekend and then the next weekend or the next time you went back, you pulled up and, you know, hopped over this ridge or whatever. And it's like, Oh, uh, there's no elk here anymore. Where are they at? And then, then notice there was some, you know, some animal, like some, uh, ranchers that had moved in. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was pretty, pretty distinct. I had one particular area where I had several cameras on two or three different water sources over the course of like two or three sections. Yeah. And, um, obviously the, the grazing rotation that they did, they ended up putting them in, putting the, uh, you know, a, a pretty substantial number of cattle in right around the, like the, I think it was right around like the 15th of August. Okay. Um, which would, you know, it makes sense because it's mid month and typically those grazing, leases are like one month long so all of a sudden on my cameras i'm getting elk and deer daily on these water sources and then you know i'm getting you know 20 pictures a day to 150 pictures a day and it's all cattle with the (laughs) occasional (laughs) with the occasional elk or deer for about the first four days four to five days after that first four or five days, it's, it's, uh, you know, a, a, a doe mule deer and two fawns like once a week. And then I've got to go through 1500 pictures of cattle from that week and make sure that nothing came through. So within, within five days of, of these cattle being moved into this particular pasture that this water hole was on, um, I, I went from elk regularly to elk on occasion for the first couple of days to zero elk yeah. for, you know, the next 20 days. So if that, if that gives you an indication of how much impact that has. So, right. So, you know, you're out there, you're locating these elk. Um, were these, were these like backcountry backpack scouting missions where you brought a tent with you, you spent the night out in the Hills or re- was this, uh, were they located in an area where you could walk to and from uh, a vehicle? Um, you know, limited, it was limited access. It was all public land. Um, so it, it was, it was limited vehicle access. Um, a lot of the areas were, were doable day hikes, but 
I mean, that's a good way really to wear yourself out pretty quick. Yeah. In my opinion. Um, you know, if you're hiking three to five miles in and, um, you know, hiking out that day and then doing the same thing the next day. Um, I, I really like to be in areas where I can hear elk, you know, especially in September, you can hear rutting activity because it seems to happen as much, if not more frequently at night than it does during the day. So getting on a high Ridge, being able to listen for bugles, um, and stuff like that is really important because a lot of times those elk, as soon as the sun comes up, they're going to go into a bedding area. They're going to be quiet, you know, shortly after the sun rises and then maybe later in the evening they're going to pipe back up but you know knowing where they come from in the evening and where they go in the morning is is critical because if you if you work in on top of those areas a lot of times you can find subtle daytime activity without having to necessarily kill yourself trying to do it so right so it wasn't like the areas where these bulls uh we're at during the summer months anyway, we're like a 10 mile hike back. No, nope. No. Okay. Um, every area, I mean, I did some overnight stuff. Um, but you know, most of it was probably in that three to six miles from the road. So, and, uh, um, you know, when, when it's hunting season, you never know when stuff is going to really pop off. So the more time spent in the field, the better, obviously. And obviously with work weeks and, and, and weekends and schedule, you have to have, you have to be able to live your life. And I was doing a lot of morning hunts and evening hunts and then working, working during the day and, you know, really giving it the, the, you know, the, the long days on the weekends. So with, with this unit being, uh, like you said, one that uh, you had been planning for for a long time, you know, this isn't a unit that you draw every year, but, you know, it was on your radar. You finally got to it. I guess, what were your, what was your expectations? Uh, were you looking for a bigger bull than what you have harvested in the past? What did this unit uh, hold as far as historic, you know, historical bull sizes or, or age class or, you know, whatever you, you were particularly looking for. And then did you find what you were looking for on those first, uh, handful of scouting trips? Yeah. You know, um, it, it, it's impressive to, to, to see how visible the elk were in the open country that it was, you know, the, the river breaks of the Missouri and stuff like that, the Eastern Montana, it's, it's totally different. It's something that's always been on my radar. I've always wanted to hunt it. Um, it's a different type of hunting, um, than what I'm used to doing in the mountains. So it was exciting for me to do. And, and, um, I guess any, any scenario that I go into any type of a hunt I go into, I'm, I'm looking for a representation of the area, you know, something that, that is, you know, that, that, bodes as a, as a respected animal for that region. You know, if I'm, if I'm hunting a, an area that's real heavily rifle hunted as an over the counter unit, um, obviously your age class is going to be deeper in the lower end. You know, you're going to have numerous two and a half, three and a half, four and a half first year, six points. There's going to be fewer of, and there's going to be very, very few of the, of that upper upper age class. So 
Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, and, and that's one of the things in the, in the breaks in Montana, they, uh, they don't have, I mean, it's not like they give away the farm with the rifle tags. So a lot of these elk are allowed to grow to bigger sizes right? right. And, and whatnot. So, um, you know, you have that even age classification where, you know, in that, in that higher end, you're going to find that there's more elk in that higher end and, and, uh, and whatnot. And that's, if I go into an area that, that, uh, a five points, a, a super respected animal, I mean, that's what I'm looking for. But, but this particular area had limited, uh, rifle tags and you're going to see a, a higher, you know, ha- higher quantity in that upper age category. And I didn't know I hadn't hunted this area and I hadn't had experience hunting that type of terrain. So I didn't know what to expect. And I put a ton of time in scouting and I put a ton of time in, you know, before I even really, I mean, I, I carried my bow with me and obviously if, if, uh, if a giant, you know, elk is, is going to show himself, I'm going to, I'm going to capitalize on that opportunity. But you know, the first, first, couple weeks of the season when I was hunting, it was more, uh, you know, what, what does this area have to offer? You know, what, and you know, I learned that through summer scouting and I learned that through, you know, what I was, you know, the time and effort I was putting in during did it well, did, did those, did those scouting trips, were you able to identify a bull or locate a bull that met your expectations as far as that unit was concerned? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw some elk that, that, uh, through trail cameras and through, you know, just scouting pictures that I, I put on like what you'd call like a hit list. You know, if I had an opportunity at this bull, I would, I would probably do whatever I could within my power to, to harvest that animal. Right. Um, but also I know that there was a lot of the the unit that I, I didn't cover. There was a lot of ground. I mean, I'm one man and, and you know, this, the unit's huge. I mean, I can't put eyes on every animal in the unit and those bigger animals obviously get bigger by being, you know, a little smarter and about what they do and how much they expose themselves. Cause you know, that's just kind of the rule of thumb when it comes to that stuff. So, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it gave me a good representation of what was there and there's always that, you know, it's just like a big white tail on a farm you're hunting. He's probably the least visible of all the deer. But if you see a lot of deer that are right below his, you know, age category, you know that all those deer are going to eventually be his age. Yeah. And you know, some of them are getting through and, yeah. and those bigger animals are just, are they're just, you know, they're, they're a lot more nocturnal. They're a lot less exposed. They're a lot harder to, to get information on. So. Right. Absolutely. All right. So now we. You've put in your time, right? You, you've scouted yep. your, your your butt off. You've put boots to the ground. You've looked at digital maps. You've narrowed down the location to where you want to basically launch your assault on these on these elk. Let's let's walk through those first couple hunts. You meant you mentioned it was kind of an observation type week where opening week where or the, the first time that you went up there was more about relocating where these animals were at, um, finding yep. an animal that met the criteria. 
So walk th- walk us through a little bit of how you did that, why you did that, and then you know also share with us. Um, you know, did you have any uh, encounters right away? Did you have, you know, was there was there a, a point of the that first couple of weeks where you're like, hey man, I could get it done early? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's kind of how how the the season started. It it's it was more about observation, learning learning the habits, finding where the cows were. Um, and I, I did that on on in several areas that I I had scouted and and planned on hunting. I I was able to to find bulls. Um, one bull in particular had about 40 cows and, uh, you know, he obviously wasn't the, you know, the biggest elk that I'd seen. So I knew that he was just, you know, the early, he was, he was one of those, those, those younger age classifications of animals, just like the two and a half year old bucks when the whitetail rut starts rolling. They're the first ones you see out scent checking and, and pestering does and everything the same thing holds true for elk and it's it's that the, those younger bulls are going to get their testosterone going sooner they're going to round cows up and there were a couple instances in, in one particular bull that i'd seen on a couple occasions that i i didn't want to tempt myself and i actually kind of got out of his way you know he i was glassing from a saddle and and all of a sudden he came over one of the the hills um you know towards the end of light and uh he was pushing his cows right at me and he had, you know, I think at that time he had 23 cows and I had yeah. glassed up another, another bull, um, off on a distant ridge that I think had come in and taken some of his cows. That was a, you know, a good respectable animal, but it's, it's more, I'm all about the pursuit and, and, and everything. And I've been in situations where I've filled my tag right away and, and it, it's, it's, it always, it's, it's awesome, but it's always like, God, you know, I wonder what would have happened if I would have waited, you know? And, uh, so that, that's, that's one encounter that I had with that bull early. Um, you know, first, uh, a couple days before season, he had those cows rounded up, um, you know, in scouting. And then I came in and another bull had come in and peeled some of his cows off and, you know, it was just going to happen, continue to happen. These, these more mature bulls were going to kind of get, get a little, little more fired up and come in and they were just going to keep peeling cows off until somebody took the whole herd from him kind of a yeah. thing. And, uh, you know, so he, I, wasn't I the dominant, he wasn't the dominant elk. Nope. Nope. Just you know, first. he was probably reaping the benefit of some of those early, early estrus cows. You know those more mature cows that come in really early. He was there for them, okay. And he he probably passed some genes on, which was which was good because I mean he 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 had the potential to be a really awesome animal down the road. But he just I you know I I didn't want to put my tag on something that soon, not right. knowing what else potentially was out there. And you know I I actually my first encounter with the bull I ended up taking was like that the end of that first week of season like the um i think it was the saturday morning of the first weekend which was like the eighth yeah and i found him i saw him and um i took some pictures of him through a spotting scope videoed him a little bit you know followed him cautiously into the the coolie that he was kind of heading up with his cows he had about 20 cows and there were a couple small bulls with him and 
it was a really calm day that day and I thought, well, there's water up that, that draw that he went up. Maybe we'll, you know, we'll go around. And, uh, I was hunting with a friend of mine and, uh, maybe we'll go around and we'll get ahead of him. And, you know, when it's super, super calm and it's super dry, it's really hard to be quiet. And, uh, from probably 400 yards away, um, out of the draw, the elk had heard us walking couldn't smell us couldn't see us but that was enough for them to kind of move out and it, it's not like they spooked but they they left at a faster pace than just feeding out of the draw you know what i mean yeah, yeah. so so that was my first encounter with him and i thought god that's a really pretty bull he's unique he's got really cool thirds that sweep up and um you know he's a respectable animal and um you know i i'd gotten you know made several friends you know in in the scouting process and talking with people that have hunted these this country and um i showed i showed the the pictures that i had of this bull to these these new friends that i had and uh they're like man there's something wrong with you if you don't try to kill that bull (laughs) (laughs) and then it's like well yeah and because i was kind of back and forth i'm like you know kind of one of those things yeah he's super nice but um I don't, I don't want to be done yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so then I, I kind of checked some other areas. Um, and I'd gotten some access on some private ground too. Um, and I checked them and, um, found a, an absolute giant bull bigger than the one I killed, um, up on one of the private pieces. But it was a, it was a situation where, you know, it was, it was a, a number of different landowners and I had, I had permission on 75% of them. And there was that one key piece kind of right in the middle of all of them that these elk were using as well. And I didn't want to, um, it wasn't, it wasn't as much of a, a thing to me. I mean, the bull was living in a, in a draw a few hundred yards up from a house that uh, the rancher lived in. And then he was feeding out on a hay field. There may have been, 75 to 150 acres of, of cover in these draws and everything else was, was ag. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, there were other guys that were hunting up there. There were other guys that were hunting them. So it was, I didn't want to get into a foot race. And, you know, I went through some, some decisions at that point in time and in, in myself and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm, I wasn't, I'm not trying to chase a number. I'm not, uh, I'm not out to shoot the biggest elk in the entire unit, anything like that. I wanted to enjoy the hunt. I wanted to be, I wanted it to be, you know, a, a pursuit, a hunt. I wanted, I didn't, I didn't feel like messing with other people and, and dealing with, you know, the politics of, of small track landowners. And well, what if it jumps the fence over here? What if it jumps the fence over there? I didn't want to get involved in too much of that because it takes from, I feel the experience I mean, it's still a wild animal doing whatever it wants to do, but, you know, I, I ended up, you know, finding that bull being absolutely wowed by him and kind of like, you know, in, in the whole process, it was just like a, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm liking where, where my hunt is and where, where it's at. Not, not, not that it's not a hunt or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's just me, 
Yeah. It was what's what I want my hunt to be and what I want, you know, everything else. So, 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 so at that this, point with this, yep. you, you located this, this giant, you got access to this, this particular mm-hmm. piece of property that this giant was living on through landowners. Did you ever go in and attempt any type of hunt or stock on this, on this elk? No, I didn't. Um, okay. I watched so, him from the road and it, and it was part of, part of my preseason. I mean, I had, I had, uh, um, I'd, I'd had some, some people that knew these, these landowners and they'd kind of gotten my, my, you know, gotten permission for me. Right. And it was the kind of thing where, um, yeah, just have him let us know when he wants to come out and we'll, we'll make sure, you know, we, we can, we can, we have a spot for him and we can have him out and, Right. I went up there. I found the bull. Um, it was a pretty famous elk. I mean, and people had known of it. And, you know, it, it came down to, like, basically, you know, the moral decision that, you know, it, it'd be cool to kill that animal and harvest him. But at the same time, I really have had a blast hunting a lot of the elk that I've found on public land as well. Yeah. So you had a little so, bit of a you had a little bit of a moral dilemma where not necessarily moral dilemma, but you decided that you were in charge of your hunt and you didn't want to, you didn't want a number or a giant, like that giant to dictate where you went or how you hunted and what you did. So you, it sounds to Mm -hmm. me like you decided to just kind of say, you know what, I'm just going to go back to public. I did all this work over here and I'm just going to, I'm going to go for something over the, you know, on public because there's just a whole lot less drama. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and, uh, I, I, I can say now, I mean, I'm, I, I still have the same opinion I had before. I'm completely happy with the decision I made and I, I was able to, you know, obviously be fortunate enough to have an opportunity at a, at a humongous, you know, world-class animal. And, um, and it was it was the kind of thing where, um, you know, I feel like I, I feel satisfied and fulfilled with the decision I made. Is kind of what it came down to. So, right. so back to kind of where I was is after going through that moral dilemma and 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 whatnot, I decided you know this is this is awesome. If it was a big tract of public or big tract of private, you know, somebody that had you know thousands of acres, it'd be different. But it was so tight to all these small track landowners and, you know, outbuildings and, and everything like that. Not, and not to take anything away from somebody that wants to shoot a big animal, but it just, it was, it wasn't what I was looking for. You, you know? wanted to do it away from all that, it sounds like. Yeah. I, wa- I wanted it to be, if that elk goes over that ridge and jumps that fence, I want to be able to follow him. I want to be able to get ahead of him. I want to be able to, you know, play a chess match without, without all the, the rules with the animal. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So, all right. So um, now you're back on public and, yep. you know, it's time to go, it's time to relocate the bull that you actually, you know, ended up killing. Walk us through that from, the, from the time where you saw him, you know, walk us through that entire time 
that time frame? Was this a day? Was this like three days? Mm. How, how did this whole saga play out with, with the bull that you ended up harvesting? Well, so I, I found him, you know, that the end of that first week of September, um, you know, I, I made a real light, more observational pursuit and kind of learned a little bit about what he did and how he did it. And then, you know, basically backed out. Um, the following day, that same weekend, I found a bull similar size that uh, a friend of mine, like I said, he was hunting up there with me that, that I actually had a, a super, super close encounter with. Um, my, my friend was, uh, was up for the weekend and he had to go back home to Bozeman where I lived to, to work that week. And, um, I said, you know, you're, you're, you're more limited. I had, I had more flexibility and time. I was able to actually work remotely from a small town up, uh, near the unit where I was, where I could get service during the week and then hunt in the evenings and in the mornings. So I sent him on, on a stock and he stocked in, he got right into the edge of the herd after we bedded him that morning. And he signaled across the draw. He was probably 250 yards from me. He signaled for me to bugle and kind of get the bull stirred up a little bit. Well, I bugled. The bull cuts me off from his bed, stands up, and you can hear him raking a tree over there. He's bugling back and forth, and we're going through this exchange. I had him all fired up and pissed off. And through this this whole scenario, uh, I hear what sounds like a bugle back from the bottom of the draw back a little further, like another bull is coming in or a hunter's trying to come in, you know, on us because there were other hunters hunting around where we were. And, uh, um, I'm sitting there, you know, comfortable on the side hill, kind of tucked into a thicker spot so that if that bull on the other side, hill were to go out in the open, he would not be able to see where I was. And he, uh, he bugled back and forth with me for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And then I heard this one bugle that seemed off. And, um, within about two or three minutes, um, hearing that bugle less than 10 yards away, I think it was like six yards in front of me, this rack pops up behind this tree. My bow is 10 feet over to the right. And this is a bull I probably would have shot. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's a big respectable animal. And, uh, um, he, he had basically zeroed in on where that bugle was coming from and was coming over to kick my butt. And lo and behold, my, you know, my hunting partner here for the weekend is standing 20 yards off the edge of cows. He's got cows bedded at 20 cows feeding at 30. Um, and the bull decides to come straight down the draw and up my side and poke his head around the bush stood there for, for obviously only a few seconds, turned around, went back down the draw stopped in the bottom of the draw, bugled at me a couple more times, raked the tree, and then worked back into his herd, never to get over towards that friend of mine that was over there. Right. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty fun, but it was also like, well, I can't say that I didn't have fun this year. If I never have an opportunity again, kind of one of those, well, there, there was my chance moments. So, Right. Did not, um, did your did did that bull that was in its bed that your buddy was trying to get on? Did he ever make his way over towards your buddy? No, he never did. He came straight down at me, and with okay. the wind, my buddy was on the opposite end of the herd. He came straight down you. the hill and then 
straight up towards me. So he never kind of went and checked those other cows. Okay. Um, and then when, when he got back over to the herd, he kind of started pushing them, you know, into the wind away and never, never presented a shot. So, all right. Um, but that, so that was, that was the day after I had my first encounter with my bull. Um, but I ended up killing and then I went up and started looking at the private, found that other, you know, giant bull, um, went through the moral dilemma. Now I'm, 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 uh, I'm headed back down South. And, and actually after that day calling for my buddy, um, I did have a brief encounter, uh, because of how aggressive that other bull was, I thought, um, I would, I would try to lure, you know, this bull in. So, um, after, after that scenario played out with my friend, he went home, I stuck around, I hunted that next morning and then I had to head back into town to work. Um, I, I got on, um, I got on the, the bull I ended up killing again and tried a similar situation with calling and stuff, but you know, he, he wasn't as receptive as the bull the previous day. Mm-hmm. And I decided, okay, um, you know, it's going to be a situation where I'm not going to be able to challenge this, this bull. It's going to be a, if I can get him talking, find his location and then work in or around him, you know, in a stalking scenario. So, so that will fast forward to my third encounter with this bull. And, and it was after sitting water for a couple of days, um, after the, 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 the big bull on private land that I'd found, I, I went back down, um, to where I was, uh, you know, hunting, you know, the vast expanse of public. And I got, uh, I sat water one night, I heard some bugles and I thought, you know what, they're further in than I want to go with it as hot as it is i'd had some mule deer come into the water and I'm like tomorrow night i'll go back in and i'll check that draw that the bugles are coming from and that's what i did i got back there that the, the night preceding that water hole fit and um got there about five four thirty five o'clock sat down I was like all right i'll take a nap i'll just start listening nice fairly calm night just enough wind to keep your scent consistent and I'd not no less than laid down and was getting ready to take a nap out on this point. Um, boom, bugle right there. And I'm like, okay, well no nap for me. Um, <laughs> my wind was absolutely horrible. You know, they were probably a quarter mile down the draw. So I started to cross and it was right where a draw, the draw forked into like three different, you know, coolies. And so I got on the middle, um, the middle point, and I actually could see far enough down where I actually got glass on, on the herd. And I'm like, Oh, it's, we called the bull that I killed thirds bull, uh, because of his, his configuration. He had real unique thirds. And, uh, I worked around, got the wind. So it was kind of quartering or coming across and, uh, knowing with the topography, um, uh, my scent wasn't going to suck down into the draw. It was either going to blow up out of the draw in my face or you know, perpendicular to the draw. So I, I started working down. I saw him, he would basically was kind of keeping his cows in a, you know, probably a 50 by 50 yard area in the bottom. And and there were two small bulls with him. Um, just like I had seen the week prior and I worked down, um, you know, I, I had bugled right before I'd taken a nap and I think that got him stirring a little bit. 
and I think that's kind of what fired him off. Yeah. Um, typically, these bulls, especially these mature bulls, they want other bulls to know where they are so they can keep their, their cows and their business separate. So that's that's something that I've always used with, with a lot of success is when I'm listening for bugles, I'll always, you know, do do a bugle, do a couple growls and a chuckle, and then I'll just I'll sit down and I'll just kind of wait it out. And nine times out of ten, if there's a, a bull with an earshot of that, you know, if it's not right in the next minute after you bugle, it'll be the next 15 or 20 minutes. You'll hear that bull bugle. And it's more, uh, hey, I'm over here. You know, it's, it's what they call a locate bugle. They're just trying to, hey, I got my you know, my hand, I'm down here. This is my turf. You stay up there kind of a thing. So gotcha. not super aggressive. So anyway, so back to where I was, I'd kind of worked around the herd. So my scent was, I was, I was still kind of borderline, but you know, you have to be able to take risks, you know, to, to reap the rewards. I mean, it wasn't ideal, but the bull was working the upwind side of the herd and I wanted to come in, you know, kind of at a, at a 90 degree to the, what the, the wind was doing. And, um, I got down on a, on a, on a little finger ridge that kind of led me right down to where they were. And I was on a, a North facing slope. So there was some cover, there were junipers, there were some pines, you know, there were some big sage bushes. So I was able to actually kind of bounce from spot to spot. And, you know, I got down to where I was probably about a hundred yards out of the, the closest cows and, I could hear two bulls or a bull raking a, uh, a tree, uh, you know, antlers planking on something. And the, the big bull was in sight. So I'm like, well, he doesn't give, you know, anything about whatever that is. So it must be a satellite. And it turned out it was two small bulls that were just kind of play fighting over off and around the corner from where I was. Well, the bigger of those, those two bulls, um, kind of, after they were done messing around, squirted himself into the middle of the herd. And he was all excited. His tongue was going everywhere. He was doing lip curls and, you know, he was trying to sniff every cow, you know, within 10 feet of him and would go from cow to cow. And then, you know, the other bull was kind of in the process of rechecking a couple cows that had kind of moved out of the herd the other direction. You know, he was 250, 300 yards out he kind of pushed them back into the herd, you know, working out around them. And the smaller bull that was in the middle of the herd kind of pushed a cow and a calf out, you know, upwind. So I'm, as I'm looking at the herd, the herd is mostly off to my right. Well, he pushed them by me and up to my left. So the bull had turned around the big bull and he's coming back and he gets to this little lip in the relief of the draw where he can see down where this bull has got these two cows and he looks directly at them, you know, bugles about as intense a bugle as he's bugled all evening and then starts walking down. And immediately the cows turn around and head back towards the center of the herd. And the other bull was like, okay, sorry, you know, <laughs> I'm out, you know, started kind of, and it was, I mean, it was obviously it was a, it was like a first year six point, like just barely a six. So it wasn't a big bull. Um, he, he knew his failed. place in the, in the hierarchy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and then he, um, I'm like, this will be perfect. Cause this bull will, will come around and he'll circle in behind those two cows. And I range those cows as they go by and they go by at, you know, 40, 45, 
yards and kind of go back into the herd. Um, problem with being that low in the draw is the on the edge of the draw before it hits the bottom. There's there's a bunch of bushes, a bunch of juniper bushes, and um, the bull walked through all those juniper bushes, and I only had a couple openings that were like the width of an elk, and and I I, I had a range because I arranged the cows that had come through and I just needed him to stop in one of those spots. And he didn't, he stopped just out of one. I mean, I could have, I could have shot him in the, in the rear end, but you know, obviously that's, that's you're for a rodeo at that. Yeah. So I waited and, and he ended up kind of working around and he, he gained a little elevation on the other side of this straw and kind of came back. And then he, he kind of did the, you'll see these elk do this. They'll, they'll stare down their opponent. You know, after they push him out, they'll kind of stand there and hold their head up real high. And he did that. And he was at 60 yards broadside when he did that. And, uh, um, so I, uh, um, I, I kind of readied myself and, you know, I took my time. That's, that's kind of on the long end of what I like to shoot, especially on big animals. Yeah. And, um, I, uh, you know, I was standing, so it's not like I was shooting from a kneeling or an awkward position. I mean, it was just like the practice that I practice, which very seldom happens in hunting scenarios, but I, I was able to draw back and, uh, um, you know, settle my pin right behind the shoulder and, um, cut the shot, shot felt good. And, you know, um, when you're shooting distances like that, a lot of times without a wrap or lighted knock or anything, you, you lose your shaft, you lose, you know, where your arrow is, but I could tell by the reaction that he had that I hit him and I hit him good. Um, but I quickly pulled my binoculars out threw those up and I could see my orange fletching like right behind the shoulder about, you know, probably one third, maybe a little less than one third up from his belly line. Um, and he ran, he did like a half circle around the herd and stopped right above him. None of the cows had spooked. Um, they were all like, what, what just happened? He stood there, ended up bedding down there. And, um, um, you know, the cows are like, what's going on? And, uh, he, I could tell after his, uh, after the shot, his head and neck were kind of hung low and he was hunched and I was just, I was like, okay, you know, I was just waiting for him to kind of either lose his balance and kind of just, just keel over or, or whatnot. And, um, I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then he lays down. I'm like, all right, he's just going to kind of slowly lay his rack down. He'll be done. And, uh, um, you know, we're probably right around sunset or maybe a couple minutes to sunset at this point, you know, maybe quarter to, to sunset. So I've, from a legal light standpoint, I still have another 45 minutes. Um, and out of nowhere, the bull actually stands back up after about 10 minutes. And I'm like, Oh no. Um, and, uh, I was like, okay, now these cows really need to leave so I can get over there and, you know, just get another arrow. I had a, a stock plan that, you know, left me out of sight for most of the, the way over there, but they didn't, you know, they, they finally left about 15 minutes before the end of legal shooting light. And I didn't feel like pressuring the bull, but he stood up and he had run into a kind of a dead end of juniper. So there was no game trail out of them. And those junipers are thick and nasty. And, and, you know, typically if there's no trail through them, 
the animals aren't going to walk through them. And uh, I figured, well, I'm just going to sit here and uh, watch him until I can't see him in my binoculars. I was about 200 yards away. And uh, um, this is, this is, you know, obviously with experience, you learn that obviously it's better to wait than it is to, to pursue an animal that's, that's hit. You know, it's, it's always good to wait a half hour, but if I hadn't seen him, um, laid up where he was, I would have pursued him sooner based on where the entry hole was. But, uh, he actually was quartering toward me more than I had suspected. And, uh, um, my exit was about four ribs back from the entrance. So what ended up happening, it was a lung liver hit. Um, but there was a giant pool of blood where he was standing the, the, that evening, but I sat there and I waited, it was probably a half an hour to 45 minutes after legal shootings light had expired because I could see his yellow body against that dark juniper background. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to back out and I'm going to work my way back to camp. And of course he was between me and camp. So I had to make about a quarter mile loop around him to head back to camp. But, you know, I got cell service, uh, on top of the, the ridge. I called a good friend of mine that I've done a ton of hunting with just to confide in somebody else's opinion. And he's like, yeah, you're fine. He'll be dead in the morning based on, you know, what you told me, you know, I mean, I think every, every hunter has that buddy that they call when they're, they need reassurance and stuff like that. So I, right. I, uh, I did that. And, um, um, I ended up, uh, getting back to camp. Um, didn't sleep very good. Obviously you never do when you're in a situation like that. And, uh, I came back in the next morning and, uh, rainless Montana had, uh, you know, we (laughs) get some weather. Of course it rains that night. So has, if he leaves that there's no, there's not going to be any blood, you know, it had been, I think over a hundred days since they'd seen rain. And the night that it starts raining in Montana is the night that I shoot, you know, my bull and I have to leave him overnight. So my fingers are crossed and everything. And, um, first light comes, I I work my way in. Quick question. Um, Quick question. Yeah. Is there, is there any like predators like bear, grizzly bears, bears, wolves in that area that you had to worry about? No, there's, there's no dominant predators like that. Like, uh, you know, something that could take a healthy elk down. Um, there are lions, there are coyotes. Um, there's no black bears, there's no grizzlies. Um, so there's stuff like that. So really, realistically, I mean, if a pack of coyotes or something gets on a wounded animal, that's, that's always a concern, but, uh, um, no, no major predators, I guess. Gotcha. So, all right. So the next morning comes. Next morning comes, my plan is to circle around, get on the opposing side of the draw that he ended up dying on, the side hill. And the side hill was fairly open, you know, with a few scattered trees and some juniper bushes. And I was going to get finding outcropping, and I'm just going to sit there, and, and I'm going to glass the spot from about 400 yards away that I watched him until I couldn't see his body shape anymore. And I got to that spot, and I looked, and he wasn't there. 
and you know then like the reel of emotion comes on and you're like oh no uh, what what now and i ended up walking about 10 feet because i was still in 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 timber on the top of that ridge the top of that vantage and i get 10 feet and there's a big hole in the trees and i can see a big tan body against a dark you know dark ground and i pull up the sun you know the the uh, binoculars and, and I look and sure enough, I, I see the rack. It's him. He'd made it about a hundred yards from, from where I last left him. Yeah. And when, when I got down to him, he was cold. I mean, um, so it wasn't like he died, you know, that morning it was, right. it was, it, he probably died shortly after I left. Yeah. So, which, you know, with the broadhead I was shooting and the, and the shot placement, I feel like if I'd had a smaller cutting diameter broadhead or, or something, you know, that, that wasn't going to work as well. Um, I, I probably might've been in for a rodeo that morning. I might've had to shoot him again or something like that. So, but, uh, I was, I was shooting, um, you know, I'll give a shameless plug here, I guess, but, the um, the blood sport grave digger, um, it's a, it's a kind of a hybrid head. It's a cut on contact. I think it's an inch or inch and an eighth cut on contact head. And then it has a inch and three quarter expandable blade that, that opens up. Um, and that was paired with a, a really heavy, I'm, I'm kind of experimenting with a super heavy arrow setup. Uh, my arrow weighs 525 grains right now Nice. that I've been shooting in at, 60 yards i got a clean pass through um and um you know the broadhead did lots of damage on the inside i mean there were when i i always like to kind of pull you know the the lung heart lung area out just to see what i hit and i i single lung and and liver hit him so i mean that was that was exactly kind of what i suspected after i'd seen the exit wound and how it it, uh, if it would have been a little higher, it probably would have been a faster kill, but because it was right at that, like one third up, maybe a little less than one third. And with the trajectory of that heavy arrow, it, um, you know, it's, it's at a, you know, seven, maybe five to seven degree downward angle when it impacted. So it impacted, you know, kind of towards the corner of his, of his, of his lower side on the, on the opposing side. But, um, he he had he had bled a ton internally. There were giant clots that had come out and stuff like that. And um, I can I can happily say if I I feel like if I was shooting a smaller cutting diameter broadhead or a different broadhead, it it may not have had the same or similar outcome. So, but well, nonetheless, you found him. He's dead. Yep. Um, you know when when you found him with this being such a you know. Uh, not your average unit to go and, and get into and you know the whole all the scouting you did all you know the the several hunts that you went on before you ended up harvesting this bull that you ended up locating what mm-hmm. was going through what was going through your mind as you were walking up on him i i was i was wow that you know the animals down in this area are have tremendous bodies and it, it almost gets to the point where it's very difficult to judge 
anything to anything else that you've had experience with, unless you're seeing and hunting these animals on a regular basis, I feel like, I feel like, uh, you, you know, you're going to be off. And I was off. I was off by a considerable amount, you know, and the score is the last thing that's important to me. What's yeah. important to me is to enjoy the pursuit and, and really have fun in the chase phase of the hunt. Um, you know, and, and harvesting a respectable animal for the area. I feel like I, I did more than that. I think he's an exceptional animal for the area. And, uh, he, uh, he, he surpassed my ex- expectations and, and I'm totally stoked with, with him. I mean, he's, the mass is ridiculous right. and that's, that's where it gets hard to, to judge him. So, but what he, he ended up scoring somewhere around, what'd you say? 380, 390. He he scratched 390 on on gross on a quick rough score that I did. Um, gotcha. His beams his beams are right at 60 inches, just shy of 60 inches. Um, and um, you know I haven't calculated the the total for mass, but I mean his first circumference measurement between the the G1 and the G2 on both sides is over 10. Jeez. So um, his bases. To give you an example of the mass his basis has, um, at his burr, it's it's over twelve. Man, so um, you know, you think of like a thirty-two ounce Gatorade bottle, one of those yeah. bigger, fatter bottles. It's, it's bigger than that. <laughs> That's ridiculous. So obviously, obviously, you walk away with a uh, you know an awesome bull to add to your you know your hunting careers. I mean. Other than that, was the experience of hunting this this uh, unit? I mean, did it live up to your expectations? Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite things about hunting is the ability as a hunter to to learn new areas, new animals, and everything. And um, I, I can say I've been fortunate enough to to kill animals in a lot of different places, and I'm always looking for that next adventure. And it's the it's the puzzle that you're, you're gathering information to try to, you know, put all the pieces together and, and figure out. And, um, you know, I, I've done that in the last couple of years. I've, I've been fortunate in the areas that I've hunted and I, I feel like I, I know those areas really well being able to dive into a new area and do this. I mean, there's definitely some luck involved, but it, it's all based on the, how, how much time you put into it. Right. Right. It's, it's, uh, I, I feel like the, the scouting is invaluable. I mean, there's, there's, you can't scout enough. Um, so, so what's next? Well, um, I'm going to do a, a hunt again with a really good friend of mine in South Dakota. Um, um, Sam Soholt, he's a photographer and he's got a, uh, a cool project that he's working on. It's a, it's a public land awareness kind of a project. He's got a, a, a bus that he's converted into a, I've seen that basically yeah. a, a living space. Um, and he's, he's traveling all over the country. He's starting, he was on my antelope hunt. He hunted with me. He was in the blind when I killed my antelope this year. Um, and you know, with, with the limited time I had with that antelope, it was the first mature antelope that came in. 
that was, you know, it could have been, it was, a, it ended up being just a doe. But like I said, I love to eat antelope so much that I, and I, I had spent so much time scouting, um, these, these animals up, uh, you know, in the Eastern part of Montana for elk that I, I just wanted a, you know, a meat animal. I wanted a, to fill the freezer with an antelope. So he was with me on that hunt. Now we're going to go back to South Dakota. We're going to hunt by the Black Hills uh, for mule deer. And um, and then I'm going to do a, a, a trip back to um, the Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, kind of that southeast Minnesota, western Wisconsin area for whitetail in November. So, nice. Um, so I'm like I said, I'm fortunate. My wife is completely awesome. She loves to see, um, you know, and hear the stories, and and uh, she's she's super supportive. Like I said, I totally hit the jackpot with her, and <laughs> you know, to have a to have a baby at home and and have the ability to hunt, you know, like I do, is is pretty awesome. And I you know I wouldn't be able to do it without her. So right, absolutely, man. Well, I'll tell you what, man. First off, thanks for coming on the podcast, sharing that uh, story of uh, the elk you harvested. And uh, good luck the rest of the season, man. Sounds like you got uh, uh, a full plate. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. And there you have it. Another week of podcasts in the books. Huge shout out to this week's guest, uh, all of them. Huge shout out to Ben. Tormson. We've had shit. I've had two Bens back to back. Ben from Hunter and Ben from out west. So, uh, Redbeard Ben, thank you very much for taking time to uh, come on the podcast again and share your stories with us. Good luck the rest of the uh, season. Hopefully, uh, you lay down a couple more animals and fill that freezer. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast Bighorn Outfitters, Exodus Trail Cameras, Ripcord Air Arrest, Deer Lab, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Ozonix, Gearhead Archery, Wasp Archery, and I think that does it. Uh, huge shout out to each and every one of you for downloading listening to this podcast like i mentioned earlier this week i found out that my website had a problem that problem has been fixed so uh, feel free to go visit the website and uh, go listen to any podcast that you may have missed huge shout out to oh i'm done giving shout outs but anyway check me out on instagram check me out on facebook check me out on twitter nine finger chronicles across the board other than that guys uh you know I'm jacked for this season. If uh, this weekend marks the opening day of your season, please be very careful. Please wear your damn safety harness. Please go sign up and become a member of the National Deer Alliance or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Quality Deer Management, any conservation uh, organization that you feel fit. What else? What else? What else? Man, I think that's it. But, man, this weekend's opening weekend it's here it's time to party i mean i can't party yet but i'm gonna party here pretty soon i feel like i'm just talking to talk now this has already been a long podcast uh stay safe love your neighbor uh adios